Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to the first episode of Talking Landscape, a podcast brought to you by the Landscape Institute and Open City. I'm your host, Paul Lincoln, editor of Landscape, the journal on which this podcast series is based. Great landscape practice is about connecting people, place and nature. In this monthly series, we want to explore what successful placemaking looks like, how spaces can craft a sense of identity, also where policy falls short, and we're going to look at what can be done about it. Through conversations with leading landscape architects, landscape planners, and landscape managers, we're going to attempt to examine the big issues surrounding beauty, nature, and the environment. And we're going to look at how landscape, and most importantly, landscape practitioners, can make a big difference. This week, I'm joined by two contributors to the summer edition of Landscape. This edition was themed around the idea of planning and beauty. Our guests are Ruth Lynn Wong Holmes and Julie Waldron. Ruth is Design Principal, Landscape and Public Realm at the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. And we're going to look at the ongoing stewardship of one of London's newest, biggest and now most loved public spaces. More on that soon. First, Julie Waldron. Julie is Senior Landscape and Water Planning Officer at Edinburgh City Council. She embarked on an investigation to try and define what we mean by beauty, and she argues why the omission of the term in Scotland's draft national planning framework is a massive missed opportunity. Welcome to the show, Julie. The draft of Scotland's fourth national planning framework forms a long-term plan looking ahead to 2045, It will set out national planning policies, designate national developments and influence planning decisions across the country. Beauty, although it is mentioned throughout the levelling up white paper, lacks a clear definition in policy wording, perhaps because it's considered intangible or maybe beyond definition. Attractive and beauty are used interchangeably in existing Scottish policy documents, but the current Scottish planning policy mainly relates the term attractive to housing but not to place. Whilst there are a few mentions of beauty in the NFP4 in relation to the rural heartland, the word is crucially omitted from the policy section, which details the qualities of successful places. Beauty is linked to positive mental health, to faster healing rates, and to more pain tolerance in humans. 
Obviously, it is famously a favourite theme of many writers, poets and artists. In 2015, the report A Community Right to Beauty found that people like places that feel like places, characterised by an identical palette of qualities, nature and greenery, but also scale and proportion, light, peacefulness, distinctiveness. The report goes on to say, yet much conspires against taking beauty seriously in much of policy making, which is often more comfortable in dealing with the easily quantifiable. So some questions for you, Julie. Tell us what the national planning framework in Scotland is and why we should be paying attention to it. Yes, of course. Well, it's the long-term plan for Scotland. So it's been written by the Scottish Government for people who work in all areas of planning. Um, so it brings together, as you, as you mentioned, Scottish planning policy, spatial strategy at a national level, but it also designates um, national development. So it, what that means is that it will define policy and spatial strategy until 2045. So it means it will affect every new development going forward, and it will also help managers make decisions as to where to direct resources. So, so we really need to get it right, um, and obviously we've uh, seen the draft so far. Thank you. Now, we're obviously at a very interesting moment in relations between the um, Scottish Government and, and, and the UK Government. So my question is a very simple one. What lessons does it have for the UK Government? There was a lot of consultation and um, it was a very collaborative approach and, uh, and that was really welcomed by everybody um, who works in this area. Um, and because it links the policy and the spatial framework together, that again was a, a really good thing. And there was a lot of feedback from us about the use of words. So they were using words like should do something and what we want is a much stronger word like you must do it. So um, because then it makes it a very um, um, even playing field, if you like. So I think... Uh, the lesson maybe for the UK government is be more direct, uh, use stronger words and be braver in, in the use of strong, strong words in, in policy. How did you go about addressing the idea of beauty? It's quite a nebulous term. So where did you start? Well, I've, I've always been fascinated by it. It's been on my radar for years. When I was really little, um, I, I lived rurally and the landscape, when it covered in snow, I was always awestruck by the fact it had gone white. Um, and I spent probably quite a lot of my, um, my student years traveling, looking for beautiful places, interesting people like fairy penguins tumbling out of the surf on Phillip Island or canoeing around the barren lakes and seeing these majestic mountains. So I was more interested in the fact that other people weren't bothered by it. That's what was interesting to me. And I happened to share a flat with an evolutionary biologist. So as I was training to be a landscape architect, I was wondering whether there was, uh, whether we had evolved. It was to do with evolution, that we'd evolved in certain landscapes. And we'd have these round the kitchen discussions late at night, as you can imagine. Um, so I was, in, is, was stone beautiful in stone buildings because we'd evolved adjacent to cliffs and therefore was concrete less attractive because we hadn't evolved with it? Was it hardwired into the brain? So you can imagine these conversations. And then he went to a conference with his piece of work, but he happened to listen in to a conversation about beauty in human faces. And he came back and told us it was symmetry. Um, and it was really when I stumbled onto um, the Deep Nutrition book by Dr. Shanahan that the connection was made, that beauty is connected to the full genetic expression um, in us as human beings, which is connected to nutrition. Um, so... 
and it, which is also then connected to maths and mathematical formula. So that it really that whole background really hooked me in into this into this idea of beauty. And I was listening out for it. So that's sort of where it comes from. Early student discussions. In your article, you write that 85 to 95 percent of people are affected by beauty in some way. Can you explain a bit more about this research and why do you think such a large proportion of people are sensitive to it? I think it's because it's linked to evolution and it's linked to pattern recognition. So we all had to be good at recognizing healthy food, food that wasn't diseased. We all had to be good at finding places for shelter. And we all had to be good at finding potential mates that, that we could you know, have children with, etc. So these outcomes, they're all linked to comfort and pleasantness. And probably uh, I imagine that it became hardwired into us. So if you like, healthy becomes somehow linked to beauty. So these two things are sort of interrelated. And the reason why it's not 100%, um, I think, is because it's such a complicated set of um, reasons. And our brains are uh, um, a little bit different. So normally, when you have a really complex biological issue, it fits into a normal distribution curve. So most people would be affected. Um, but there are subtle, minute differences in our brains because of genetics and environmental influences that means that there is some people who don't think they're interested. So if you talk to them, but maybe subconsciously they are affected by beauty. Uh, so the research on pain tolerance indicated people were better dealing with pain, which you mentioned. But I don't know if they asked the people whether they thought they were affected by beauty before they started inflicting pain on them. I'm not sure. Um, and I think the research with the wind turbines was really interesting because people were saying that they were affected by whether the wind turbines and they would, it was, could damage the landscape. But then you, you got that small number, five, 10%, were really interested more by the technology, fascinated by the technology. Um, so it sort of makes sense to me that there are some people who are very, very sensitive and they generally end up as artists and designers. And some people at the other end of that normal distribution curve who are far less sensitive. But the majority of people um, are very sensitive. And I think that's what we've got to remember, that the majority of people are really sensitive to beauty. If beauty is so intrinsic to so many people, why do you think it's often overlooked, even ignored, especially when it comes to planning? I think it's because it's very difficult to measure. Um, so planners, they have an application in front of them. Um, and they have to decide whether or not it aligns with policy and whether on balance the development should be recommended for refusal or approval. And this balancing act is very difficult if you have something so difficult to score. So it's much easier if you are looking at something like percentage open space. Does the application provide the percentage open space required? Yes, it does. Or no, it doesn't. Or is there enough light coming through the window? Or um, is it the correct use on that site? Is it residential or is it industrial? Um, can the bin lorry pick up the bins? You know, it's right down to the detail. The planning officer is looking at all of these things. Um, can people lock up their bicycles? So suddenly you're asking them to do something to make a judgment on beauty. Uh, you know, you might have to go back to the three constants of beauty, symmetry, the golden ratio and fractal patterns. And then you've got to rely on the individual case officer to make that argument. So I think that's why it's so difficult. And there's always a risk that somebody see more senior will disagree. And then you've got to argue your case as a case officer. So I think it's just, it's, it's just difficult. It's not, it's, not an easy, it's not an easy thing to argue. It's really important, but it's not easy. 
it's interesting you mentioned bins because the question I wanted to ask you is that we often expect our large parks to be beautiful but maybe there is a low expectation of the everyday beauty in the street or outside a doctor's surgery or the post office. So how can we make the everyday more beautiful? I think I'm, I'm really passionate about the everyday. I think it's really important we live in a beautiful environment because it, it affects people's happiness. It affects their mental health. So local places, really important. And so are parks, and, but they have to be well-maintained. I think that's key. They, they can't be considered beautiful unless they have that maintenance. Um, and it, it doesn't have to be expensive. It could just be a small area of bulbs or a single flowering cherry tree or something. The scale is it, exactly the same. The scale can be very, very small to very grand. The beauty can be appreciated um, at any, any scale. So something like outside of a doctor's surgery, I think is absolutely key because it will help people cope with pain and stress and distract them from the reason they're actually there. So I, I do believe that people should be able to walk out of their flat or their house and sit on a bench or a wall and, and wonder at the beauty of nature or a beautiful view or a bench or even one flower. I think it's really, yeah, I think it's really important that, that we, we allow that and, and we, we, we focus on that detail as well at the local scale. 2022 marks the 10-year anniversary of the London Olympics. This saw up to 180,000 visitors visiting East London's Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park each day of the Games. Back in 2005, London's winning Olympic bid promised to be a model for social inclusion, vowing its legacy would be the regeneration of the area for the direct benefit of everyone that lives there. The park is divided into two distinct areas, each which has a clear identity. The southern end is bold, bright, full of activity, with planting designs by Piet Udoff, Nigel Dunnett, James Hitchmar and Sarah Price. Influenced by Great Dixter, the Grade 1 listed gardens of the late horticulturalist Christopher Lloyd, it's a landscape of fountains, artwork and planting, and it brings together both beauty and biodiversity. In the north, you can find a more controlled and managed blend of contoured landscape. There is a palette of blue water, rich greens, and together they create a calm and soothing environment. The parklands and public realm for the North and South Parks were designed by LDA Design, together with Hargreaves Associates, who were also commissioned as the landscape architects for the post-Games transformation. After the Games, James Corner Field Operations designed the South Park Plaza, delivered by LDA Design. Each year, the first generations of designers on this vast project are invited back to guide the current park management team. This is a process which is unique to this site as it allows the landscape architects to guide development of the park over time. So a decade on, the park now attracts something like 6 million visitors a year. It's a testament to its success. It's a sustainable space. It's got a legacy for sport, community, ecology and landscape and so Ruth I've got a number of questions for you. I remember I was uh, working in the area of the park about four years before it was built and um, I was um, questioned as part of the consultation so I've got memories now of what a shock it was to realise that the park is now so well established. When you were writing this article you had to look at the park as a place that was both old and new. 
So my question is, what were some of the things that really stood out for you about this site? I think the site is so fascinating in terms of how people interact with it and the feedback we get that it's a very modern path in terms of its design. When we asked Sadiq Khan, our mayor of London, what he found most important about the park was the fact that it had so many entrances and felt really open and very much part of the city, and it really stitched the city together. And he also talked about a sense of it rebalancing London in terms of its green space provision, and as you say, with the large institutions coming, like the BNA, Sadler's Wells, London College of Fashion, finding their home here because the park has brought that sort of value to East London. Thank you. What do you think are some of the most successful aspects of the park? I think it's a great park because it's a river park and it has water and green at its sort of heart, uh, which means it has a great sort of sense of loops and walkways and sense of topography. But also within that, it's got two very different characters, as you mentioned earlier. The North Park links in with the Lee Valley Regional Park and its sort of biodiversity, nature, naturalistic, but in a controlled way. And then in the south of the park, it is vibrant and it's exciting and there's lots of playful things like the water fountains or water labyrinth um, and feels more about entertainment and access to venues. So I think that it has something for everyone and it's spaced out enough that people don't bump into each other as much and can actually use it in the way that they want to use it and interact with the park. What does the local community make of the park? In fact, is it right to say that there is a single local community? Or would you say that your community is in fact the whole of London and its visitors? I think it's really interesting because we have visitor research that we look at each year to understand where people are coming from and what they're doing when they come to the park. And yes, we serve national, international, local um, quite a few people come in the southeast because Stratford Station is so incredibly well connected to the rest of the UK and the rest of London. So we have a, a very interesting and diverse kind of population of people using it. And yet equally, sometimes we realise that people just across the way um, from Stratford are not using it. And so we do still really want to get to that point where we feel that they feel it's their neighbourhood park just as much as anyone coming from abroad uh, feels it's not a destination to go and see and enjoy. Last year, the government updated the National Planning Policy Framework. It said it wanted to put beauty at the heart of the planning system. In the case of the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park, tell me how beauty manifests itself in this project. We had an incredibly good discussion with a group of um, people who've been involved in the park or around the park recently as part of the London Festival of Architecture, and it created great debate about what was beauty, what does it mean? We shouldn't be afraid of using beauty as a, an idea, concept that, you know, we are trying to deliver as landscape architects, as stewards of landscape or parks or, or estates. Um, and what was it? Was anything from that moment where you see something very small, whether that be something in the habitat, a plant, a butterfly, a flower, all the way up to the very large landscaped interventions where there is a beautiful framed view or sculpted landscape. Um, when the landscape architects working on the Olympic Park to begin with um, moulded everything in clay and sculpted things in a very sort of artistic beautiful way which then has been delivered at a very grand scale. So I think it, it goes from small scale to very large scale 
where you can see beauty and all sorts of in between. And even that we've created spaces where people have beautiful moments as well. And I think there was a discussion about that where, where it's a sense of connection, either with nature or with other people that also manifests in the landscape. You yourself have a significant professional history in the management of parks. Before you did this job, you managed the Royal Parks. How does the stewardship of this site compare to that of other really large-scale projects in the UK? And indeed, how does it compare with other Olympic parks around the world? The stewardship is interesting for this role, and I'm really pleased that we have um, someone who's I've also worked with at Royal Parks, which is David Withercombe uh, for Landscape Management Services, who brings that sort of expertise and knowledge to the stewardship and wrote the first management plan for the Olympic Park. And why is it different? No, the problems and the issues and the what we do is very similar. We are very lucky that it was set up during games time to have a fund from the properties and people living around and businesses around the park, which will contribute to the management and maintenance of the park going forward, which we call the fixed estate charge. That was set up, so there is a sense that we don't necessarily have to be as commercially minded, though obviously to top that up, and also to create in interest and entertainment, there is a commercial element to managing and maintenance. But across the parks and across London, across the whole UK, I think, there is that tension and balance between raising income to look after the fabric, what that implication of having those events and activities in the park are, on the fabric and then how you can best sort of balance the books and and do what we really want to do for parks and open spaces have high quality stuff that everyone finds equitable and accessible and inclusive and i want to ask you a question about the influence of the olympic park over the period since the olympic park opened there have been i think two or three new parks uh, Mayfield opened just two weeks ago in Manchester as a good example. Also, one of the legacies of the pandemic is that people are perhaps taking parks rather more seriously or valuing them more than they did previously. So what would be your message for anybody that is contemplating building a brand new park in terms of the influence that you would like to offer from the Olympic Park? The feedback we have from other landscape architects who talk about the park, that it felt it was a real game changer in terms of having something that genuinely felt landscape-led of scale. And if you read Dave Hill's uh, book about the Olympic Park when Britain built something big, um, he also mentions that Edor was at the part of it. And the reason why Edor won the uh, master planning of the park was that they were it was a landscape-led approach. It was about those networks and those connections. It was not about creating buildings that then had a landscape around them. It was about um, how that landscape would function and form during the games time for this incredible, like, once-in-a-lifetime event um, into the future and the idea of legacy. So I think there was lots and stuff that was tied up in it, sort of political situation, the finance, the work that had laid the ground before they thought of building the park and bringing the Olympics to this part of London. And all that thinking and that design attention and having clients that were really keen and really bought into this idea of a landscape-led approach um, made fundamentally a difference. So for other people, I think it's about an intelligent clienting, if you can, being able to guide and help your client 
understand that and help that they buy into what you're doing and why you're doing it so that you can truly deliver it. And that's across all sectors, the engineers, the architects, the um, MEP, the soil scientists, everyone is all buying into that vision and is able to deliver something amazing. I mean, we hadn't, they had an incredible deadline. They hadn't the world watching. So it had that sort of impetus and energy behind it. But if you can help generate that um, in whatever project you have, then hopefully you can, yeah, deliver something special. An awful lot has happened since you both wrote your articles earlier this summer. Uh, the ending of lockdown, a new monarch, a new prime minister, four chancellors of the Exchequer, and a focus less on the joys of green space as a refuge in time of crisis, and now more of a focus on growth. So here are some closing questions for you. How do we argue for a notion of beauty that delivers both growth and green space? It's interesting. I was just reading something from the Green Space Partnerships where it's just saying you can't have one without the other, but people just don't seem to get that. And it's quite tricky to make the argument, I suppose, when people are worried about the costs of living and viability and how developments are going to go forward. But without nature, without green spaces, without sort of healthy places for people to live, this sort of gently collapses and this is why we've got climate change emerge why we're having flooding in our area you don't have land value you don't have economics if it if the land becomes worthless because you have a situation that is driven by climate change which we're not combating because we're not taking um, action on climate emergency so it's difficult uh, for people to kind of put those two things together now they want to be able to separate it because actually it's easier it's an easier way. Landscape architects thinks in terms of networks and in terms of scale, in terms of climate, in terms of all those other things. And other and it, it's just sometimes too much for people to think that way. Um, and so it's difficult sometimes for us to make the argument. Okay. And Julia, what are your thoughts on how we deliver growth and green space? Well, following actually on from Ruth, I think you've picked up some really interesting things that you're talking about there. So there is, we have in Edinburgh, um, it, it's quite a small example, but I think it, it exemplifies quite well. So there's a, a retail park and they are hoping to solve the flooding problem and they're hoping to create a more beautiful space, which will then raise the amount of time people will stay. So the concept being that it does raise the value of the place and, and for the businesses, but at the same time, we can create a beautiful place or a more beautiful place that deals with the flooding. So we're just at the really early stages working with Scottish Water, who've got tremendous understanding of, of the um, underground piping systems and, and how we have flooding, uh, working with our engineers and working, I think is the interesting part is this working with the, uh, the finance side of the equation. So how do we um, argue the value that it's giving to business? So as you said, I think I agree with Ruth completely that they go hand in hand and people know that that housing, if it has a beautiful view, you sell it for more money. If a business has a beautiful setting, you're more likely to attract the people that you want to attract, et cetera, et cetera. And people are likely to be happier and more productive. So I think it's it's when you have it's the when you are speaking with people whose focus is finance, it's putting the financial arguments forward, um, and the financial arguments being that it will actually pay dividends for them to create beauty. 
rather than putting the beauty arguments forward because they're obviously more they're more driven by the they're in that five ten percent of people more driven by other issues rather than beauty so i think it's but i agree with ruth completely they they go hand in hand together in the article by julie you quote umberto echo on beauty who said a beautiful thing is something that would make us happy if it were ours but remains beautiful even if it belongs to someone else now, public spaces and parks are always, by definition, someone else's. So how do we make them beautiful? I guess I put that in because I thought it struck me because I was thinking, you know, if, if there's a vase that I really, say just, for example, the small object that I really loved, would I, would I think it was beautiful if I didn't own it and I was just looking at it in an art gallery? And I thought, well, yes, I would. I would think it's beautiful. So um, when it comes to public open spaces and parks, I do believe that it should be publicly owned having worked in a city where there have been questions and discussions about this if we have a publicly owned park then we can use it for people can use it for farmers markets and all sorts and there isn't that opportunity for things to get tricky if it is a private park that allows people in um, then there's an opportunity for things to get more difficult in the future so yes I think it's it's it, I think that idea that you that the I think it should be publicly owned and people should they don't have to own the park but they have to be able to access it and we have to make sure that that accessibility can continue in perpetuity and there isn't a chance it could be closed off with railings and locked down so I, I do I do think it's really important yeah it's interesting because my first thought was the sort of Chinese and Japanese concept of borrowed landscapes where you often have you may well have a landscape design that borrows landscape from elsewhere to create that kind of moment and that beauty and that frame thing and then the second thing I was thinking about was uh, the privately owned public spaces which quite often because that landowner is at scale and knows the value of good quality public realm and will finance looking after that that you often end up with spaces which are really rather beautiful um, and particularly in urban areas those things are meshing together and actually if you're a member of the public you have no idea that you're moving from one piece of publicly owned land to a bit of privately owned land and actually what you want as landscape architects is to kind of make sure that's swept away and there's a sort of seamless blend of connectivity that people feel comfortable and safer and um, and able to reuse and enjoy. There's something to delight everyone, said Ruth in referring to local parks in London, like Brockwell Park. Are we going to be able to create something to delight everyone? I do hope we can. And also the other thing I think in terms of delighting everyone, um, no matter what, I think there's a sort of connection and very basic um, connection with nature and planting and flowers, which I feel genuinely feel is pretty universal. When you see someone's face light up because they've seen a beautiful piece of nature or planting or whatever it speaks to them very fundamentally and even that and even if you can't respond to it visually there are often plants and sort of nature where you feel you have a very interesting sensory response to and so I think that is something which could delight everybody. And let me ask you the same question, uh, Julie. Um, are we going to be able to create something to delight everyone? I think we should definitely aim to, absolutely. Um, and just again, following on from what Ruth was saying, I think the, the, the noise side of it, I think it's um, really important that because peace is so important, especially in an urban scenario. Um, so in the noise of rustling of trees and rustling of, 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 of uh, 
of grasses. So I think, it, as, as Ruth was saying, it's a sort of multi-sensory thing. Uh, and if we can capture that and we can give that, then it be, makes it more accessible to people who perhaps, you know, so don't can't pick up all the senses. So I think it's good to important to think about that. So we have inclusive environments. I think that's important as well. Thank you very much, Julie and Ruth. And thank you for listening. The current edition of the journal is available to read online free of charge. Just follow the link at the top of the Landscape Institute website. The next edition is published later this month. It's a special edition guest edited by our immediate past president, Jane Finlay, and it looks at the topic of women and landscape architecture, celebrating a century of creativity. And this is a theme that we will be exploring when we meet again next time. Thank you very much for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.